Welcome to another episode of Perfect Night In. Before we begin, I would just like to give a big shout out to all my patrons who make this podcast possible. If you'd like to support this content, please head to patreon.com forward slash perfect night in. It really does mean a lot. Today's special guest is the journalist, writer and broadcaster Samira Ahmed, who you can currently find presenting Front Row on Radio 4, Newswatch on BBC One, as well as the podcast How I Found My Voice. Let's go and meet her, shall we? Hello, Samira. Welcome to Perfect Night In. Thank you very much. Before we start, can you tell us where this Perfect Night In is taking place? Yeah, um, we have a big flat roof extension in the house that my parents built in 1980. And I, I now I bought my parents' house, so I have the same room. And we've got a more, a more modern telly. And I bought a special sofa some years ago for watching telly, which has got a long bit where you can lie out. Yeah, it's like really long and like loads of like, all my kids can get on it. And I've got blankets. So we would we would lie and sprawl on this big sofa with blankets. Okay, you get snuggled in on that sofa and we'll get your perfect night in started. It's six o'clock. And your evening begins with an episode of the goodies called War Babies. I am a huge fan of this. It's, you know, one of the great, great programmes to come out of BBC comedy, I think. And, you know, it ran a really long time. So over that run, you know, it really changed and developed. And, you know, I have particularly fond memories, I must say, of some of the early 70s episodes when I was a kid and their kind of surreal humour. But some of them, watching them back, you know, there's there's quite a lot of sexism in it. And it took them a while, I think, to to sort of hone the kind of, you know, the really good writing and, and focus on the kind of the absurdist plots that kind of spin off in their own logic. And the episode that I've chosen is actually from very late in their BBC run. It's from 1980. And... Because my dad was an early adopter, we had a Betamax video. In fact, we even had a Philips top loader from 1975. So we recorded that episode off telly on transmission in 1980. And it was one of only about two episodes that we had. And of course, I watched it repeatedly. So I had really fond memories of it, but I hadn't seen it for years and I revisited it. And it's it's a perfect example of the goodies great humour, which was taking an idea of the war <laughs> and then spinning off into its own extremes um, and it's got loads of great lines it's got some really nice little comedy roles for women you know the kind of the woman who gives birth to a giant billotty baby it parodies all those um, you know wartime newsreels the whole idea that all babies look like Winston Churchill um, I just I don't know there's so much to love <laughs> there's a war to be won and here's President Roosevelt Mr Stalin and General de Gaulle wondering how but here comes Winston to show them the way shake on it <laughs> No, he's never without that famous cigar. <laughs> As he prepares to rouse our kids in khaki with more of those stirring words that strike dread into the heart of every Hun. One of the other things about this particular episode is, you know, it's got lots of really nice little jokes in it. So the whole thing about the three goodies is they're all... <laughs> they've all been born, like, in adult bodies. And the idea is that they're spent to a special wartime school because they're all so advanced for all these other children who are going to kind of help develop things to sort the war and actually of course it builds on this idea even though you know it's only more recently we've made films about people like you know Alan Turing and all those projects and Radar and all the rest of it but there's just a great little moment when um Jeffrey Palmer's head teacher and is talking to them about something and this idea that they're really mature and you can just see Bill Oddie kind of giving the wink to the school matron and it's just like an example of how the humour was you could argue it's a bit dated but it wasn't it wasn't unpleasant it was actually funny And I think that's why I would argue that some of the later episodes of The Goodies hold up particularly well because they've really finessed, or particularly Graham, I suppose, has really finessed his writing style. So, now for today's timetable. You HRLs will be investigating the feasibility of a nuclear fission bomb. (laughs) Pretty far-fetched, I agree, but if anyone can crack it, you bobs in Miss Thompson's coats can. Six-year-olds... You will be carrying on for most of the afternoon improving the radar installation and you four-year-olds will be doing a picture of a snowman. And the thing about Bill Oddie, which he did say, and I think it was underappreciated, was he wrote and pioneered a new kind of musical comedy music. You know, rather than just being kind of comedy saxophone, every song, you know, they're different 
types, you know, there's kind of reggae and ragtime and all kinds of things. And the lyrics, they're all, you know, they're a commentary on the on the, the visual comedy. And no one had done that before. So he pioneered a new form of kind of comedy music. And I don't think he, he has ever fully got the credit for his musical originality. It never gets repeated, does it, the goodies? No. And, and it's funny, I interviewed the goodies when the, the box set was released a couple of years ago. And it's, it's really sad because it was the last time that I saw them all together, you know, because Tim, Tim Brooke Taylor sadly died of COVID in 2020. But I think this, there's all kinds of issues and there often are. I mean, you think how often people, especially in comedy, find that the way that their art is treated by the corporation is, is really frustrating. I nearly chose a different episode. The, the very famous one is Gunfight at the OKT Rooms, which won, I think, a Montreux Award, the kind of comedy festival. Yeah. And I remember we actually had that one and there was an episode of The Good Life. And those two episodes, we had both won awards at Montreux and they showed them in a double bill on the BBC One Night to sort of celebrate the fact that they'd won. So there, there were kind of repeats when they won something. But even that would have been a repeat in, you know, what, the late 70s. I remember Kit and Kong as a kid and I remember the giant Dougal, but that's about it, mainly because I, I guess it's never been repeated. Yeah, and the giant Dougal, I, I nearly chose that one too. From talking to them in the past and also just, you know, reading interviews with them, they did work with people who developed techniques almost out of silent cinema and the ambition of it. I think one of the big issues was the cost. And in fact, that was the reason when they went to ITV, the series got cancelled very soon after because ITV just hadn't counted on the massive cost. And of course, the BBC in the old days, you weren't individually costing items you know if you got commissioned you then just rang up the relevant departments and said we need this stuff and they made it for you you know they made you they made you the cloth caps for ecky thump no they need to be bigger <laughs> so go back and make it bigger so as i say i i loved talking to them i was able to kind of bring out a lot of my stories and there's another episode that i nearly chose which was oh god i've got to be so careful i say this cunning stunts <laughs> which is the one about sexism in the newsroom I told Graham Gardner that had been a personal inspiration to me when I brought my Equal Pay Tribunal. <laughs> yeah, Mildred is quite clearly ideally suited for the job on account of her long legs. Experience. Experience. She has extremely impressive bosoms, breasts. Um, qualifications. She has a, a splendidly pert, cheeky, pinchable little, 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 little degree in economics and sociology and, and a terrific bum. Bottom. And, and, and I'm sure we shall all enjoy groping her, working her with her. So kindly push off. OK, Samira, so the goodies takes us up to 6.30 and your next choice won't surprise anybody, I don't think. Yes, it's Space 1999, and you've chosen the episode Earthbound. Oh, so even though I'm a huge fan of Star Trek, Space 1999 was this brand new thing, and I was I was absolutely captivated by it on transmission in 1975, I think it started showing in the LWT region. The thing about it was, it was like a really British take on Star Trek, in, in that it was incredibly bleak, and mm. Series 1 in particular. So, you know, they hurled into outer space, and this was quite an early episode. And, you know, they're thinking about, can we, you know, they can't conceive of what they're going to do in terms of trying to get back. And then the idea that these aliens arrive. And, of course, because the Andersons were filming in that weird era after the 60s when there were all these great British film stars just hanging around. So you have people like Christopher Lee turning up as an alien in kind of weird paint and says, actually, we're heading that way and we can take one of you because, you know, you accidentally killed one of our um, people and we can put them into suspended animation. So... The whole episode is actually a kind of, I mean, Sartre and Camus would love this. You know, it's sort of this whole ethical dilemma about, you know, who gets to go. And of course, what I love ultimately about Space 1999, and I even interviewed Martin Lando once, and I remember mentioning it to him, was the people who run the base are really morally upright. They have no doubt about doing the right thing and about sticking together. So they're going to have a really fair system for, for choosing. But there's this kind of grumpy old, like, kind of, you know, earth bureaucrat who's ended up stranded with them and he of course he wants to get back so he basically forces his way onto it and it has this incredibly surreal ending which is ultimately the reason why I chose it because you know I saw this at, you know 11 30 on a Saturday morning what my dad was probably mowing the lawn outside and he wakes up inside the capsule 
and assumes he's landed on, you know, they're coming into Earth and that's where suspended animation has ended and realises that, of course, the machinery was never calibrated for him because he forced his way on without being allocated and he's going to slowly die on this 75-year journey to Earth and on the base they can hear him hammering the glass and screaming. What an ending! Koenig! Can you hear me, Koenig? You've got to help me! Koenig, this hasn't worked! You've got to help me! There's nothing we can do. Kurt, can you hear me, Kurt? Answer me! Kurt! Sandor! 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 It's a fabulous ending. It really subverts your expectations because you expect Christopher Lee to be like a space vampire because he turns up in this glass coffin and you expect him to be the bad guy, but they're really reasonable aliens. And the yeah. bad guy is the bureaucrat. I believe he's in, in the first episode as well, isn't he? Roy Detrice, I think it's the yes. guy he plays Yes, him. he is. Uh, um, and he's a real pain in the backside, isn't he? So it's great to see him get his comeuppance. Yeah, that, I think I think that's why it really pays off because it sort of refers, as you say, refers right to the beginning. And the whole way we think that the aliens will be bad people and then they actually turn out to be incredibly gentle and generous and forgiving is brilliant. So your hope is to settle on Earth? If we are welcome, yes. But if you are not, then we would submit ourselves to a voluntary reduction. Uh, in your terms, we would take our own lives. I love that show, and I love the aesthetic of it, because it was a bit 2001 with the kind of clean lines of the base and all that plastic Italian furniture. I'm shocked that they haven't remade it. You know, the thing about it was, because it was set only 24, 25 years ahead mm-hmm. of the time in which it was made, it, you know, it, you'd have to recalibrate all our expectations, but when might we be realistically be living on a base? Space 2099. Yeah, although the whole Elon Musk model of, you know, oh yeah, we build a base on the moon and Mars and we kind of exploit it in a capitalist way, is sort of fitting, because Space 1999, if you remember, they would have been dumping nuclear waste on the moon, burying it in a giant landfill site, and it explodes, because obviously the health and safety regulation, it's all self-regulation, and you know, like the sort of waterworks, they just pollute and they'll pay a fine. Well, once again, I've sat in at a command conference and listened to a cosy round of self-congratulations. Aren't we doing well? Mm? adapting, adjusting, coming to terms. And once again, I am shocked that we've not discussed a serious attempt to locate Earth and return there. Simmons, we can't afford to waste our time on something scientifically impossible. Impossible? The impossible takes just a little longer, that's all, Commander. Are you a fan of season two? Because I know season two takes a completely different approach. I know, it's controversial. And I do think season one is, is better. But it is a lot darker. What I did like about season two, and and I have to admit this, is I really adored Maya, played by Catherine Mm. Schell, and I really wanted to be her. And there was an idea of her as the kind of female Spock, and she had that really cool Italian boyfriend. Um, So I think she was a real role model for me. Um, You know, she was the smartest person on that base, and there was a kind of innocence about her, which I loved. And one of my favourite episodes is from episode uh, series two, which is um, they go to a planet with the chlorine-breathing beings which regenerate like in a chrysalis it's called the ab chrysalis and just the whole visuals of it and again the way it imagines another culture where humans are trying to work out how they communicate what language they speak what really let down series two and it it lets down that episode as well is the reliance on ludicrous rubber suit monsters which was brought in supposedly by freddie freiberger from star trek so i know there are many who feel it must never be spoken of um (laughs) So I, I do think it's inferior, but there are some cracking episodes in series two, too. And Maya, Maya stands out. She saves it for me. Do you know your problem, Tony? No, what's my problem, Maya? You're prejudiced. Me, prejudiced? Just because you look funny, come from the planet Psychon and turn into an eel the last time I put my arms around you? Prejudice. That's not prejudice. What is it, then? Fascination. Before we move on to your next choice, uh, can I get you something to eat, uh, like a snack of some sort? Mm, so my favourite snack would be... A sliced buttered currant bun, not toasted. Okay. Just sliced, so it's cold, but like lots of butter and a hot chocolate, a really nice one. Can I also press you on what your favourite flavour of Monster Munch is? Oh, I hate Monster Munch. Oh, no. I can remember <laughs> trying it at school. Someone bought it and it was because it was not a new, quite a new product when I was at school. And I have never been into extruded snacks. Bango's my chance of getting this podcast sponsored by Monster Munch. <laughs> <laughs> 
one of these days Sorry. the dream continues okay let's move on to your 7.30 choice which is So you've chosen The Prisoner. I never watched The Prisoner, you know, on original transmission. I was too, I wasn't born, I don't think, or was barely a babe. But they started repeating it in the 90s, and I used to catch bits of it, and it always struck me as, like The Avengers, which I also adored, it had this kind of surreal sense of being in a dream world, and, and you know, the lushness of it. And oh, I tried to think, it was about 10 years ago, we got the DVD box set, and we all sat and watched it as a family with our kids. Wow. And we really got into it, and the sort of intensity of the world. And again, it's dealing with quite existential ideas, isn't it, about the human consciousness. And I've once said to Matthew Sweet that I thought if the Anglo-Saxons had had the budgets of ATV in the late 60s and Lou Gray, they would have made something like The Prisoner. Instead of being The Pearl or The Dream of the Rude, they'd have made The Prisoner because it's the idea of the soul within this world that is ephemeral and, and is trying to kind of make sense of eternity. And Patrick McGowan is just such a weird performance. There's an intensity about him and a violence about him, which is sort of unlikable. Yeah. But um, it's kind of gripping. Where am I? In the village. What do you want? Information. Whose side are you on? That would be telling. We want... Information. 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 You won't get it. And the episode I chose, The Schizoid Man, is just perfect. I mean, every time I watch it, it just sucks you in because the idea is that they brainwash him to thinking he's somebody else impersonating himself to try and break him. And of course, it's playing with all those ideas that were very current at the time, like the Manchurian candidate about you know brainwashing in, in the communist bloc and you know fears in the Cold War. Um, but also just the mind games of you kind of lose track of who is who, who yeah. and how he outwits himself. And, you know, it has a great cameo by Earl Cameron, the late great Earl Cameron, who I was lucky enough to interview um, to mark his 100th birthday at the BFI, who is this kind of great talented actor who came from the Caribbean and um, there's a lovely line in it when he's talking to number two and he says something about oh in Haiti we would say in Haiti we'd say he's stolen his soul they're just it's a beautiful little script and it's just got lots of haunting imagery and even things like I think one of the, the the residents of the village is a Sikh so you just I always notice those little seeds that remind us how multicultural Britain was even even in some of its kind of old kind of cult TV. I love this episode particularly because it's double Patrick McGowan. Yeah, you can't get enough. I mean, the, the episode where he has a brain transfer because he was off shooting Ice Station Zebra. It's just, I don't like the episodes where they leave. It, the whole essence has got to be you're trapped there. And the whole, you know, the whole mind reading thing. You know, you can't quite work out, are we supposed to take this seriously or not? But again, it's all part of the thinking of the time. You know, all the early Yuri Geller stuff about ESP was happening then. So it really taps into the zeitgeist, I think, this episode. I take it I'm supposed to go all fuzzy around the edges and run off into the distance screaming, who am I? Probably. Um, no idea. Would you like some ice? Thank you. I think it spoils it myself. Yes, uh, I always keep it in that thermos bucket over there. You know, I never realised I had a freckle on the right-hand side of my nose. When they come to film my life story, you've got the part. I suppose, you know, it's, it's probably not too similar to the ending of Earthbound, is it, um, in a weird way, in that you think he thinks he's escaped and and then number two has deliberately tricked him and they, the, the, um, the helicopter kind of takes off but then brings him straight back down. It's It's a real sinking moment, isn't it? They do that a few times, don't they, in the series where they bring him full circle and he thinks he's escaped and he ends up back where he started from. Yeah, so there's a nightmarish quality to it too. Um, that's partly why it's remarkable because it, it doesn't leave you with a happy feeling ever. It always leaves you unsettled. But that's, you know, when you're thinking about the, the idea of existence, that's how, how you would feel. 
But it's funny because over the years I've often worked at Westminster and the title sequence where he drives at high speed into that underground car park, that's where you always parked if you were working at the BBC. And there's a BBC studio just around the corner built through, you had to get through this medieval wall. And I once had to escort Edward Heath there after a dinner in, in, the, in the Commons to, to appear on Newsnight. And I remember he fell asleep sitting... <laughs> this was in the early 90s. He, he fell asleep sitting in the chair waiting to be called. And they had a telephone, like an old-fashioned ring telephone on the desk. And the, um, the studio arranged to ring it loudly every so often just to wake him up. But the great thing was, the moment it was time for him to come on, he just opened his eyes and he was super alert. And, um, yeah, that was a surreal moment. But I have, I have basically I associate the prisoner with my weird memories of being a young news trainee escorting Edward Heath into this empty, unmanned studio. There was just me and Edward Heath sitting, and he was sitting at this empty desk with a telephone on it. That was a kind of prisoner-esque feel to that whole experience. Well, I certainly shoot more like me than you do. What does all that prove? That you should have put in more shooting practice before you took on this job. How's your fencing? You should know, you've studied my file. Turning the tables, very neat. These foils have all a length. I'm a good lord. Hamlet, act five. Scene two. You have done your homework, haven't you? Okay, so The Prisoner takes us up to 8.30 and your next choice is more science fiction. episode of Star Trek you've chosen, Samira, is Space Seed. Oh, so this is, I mean, this is my great, great love. It just, one, it just looks so fabulous. It's a bit like The Prisoner. If you think about the colours and the lighting, you know, it's so beautifully shot. But this is one of the darkest episodes, and it's famously the one that spun off into um, Star Trek II, the film The Wrath of Khan. And it's incredibly dark. I suppose I, I realise I've chosen re- all the really na- nastiest episodes of everything. Sorry, slightly gloomier um, perfect night in than I thought but it's done so economically and just there's so many ideas in this episode the idea that in the past they experimented with eugenics and they created the super race who of course then all became Hitler's and rather than execute them or lock them up they kind of put them into stasis and sent them off into deep space so in a sense this is like earthbound in reverse where they find these people and um, they start to revive them and then they very quickly start to take over and it, it does become a kind of the Nazis take over the ship. And I always love the episodes that were set on the ship. Contact Starbase 12. All channels are totally jammed, Captain. Brilliant. Every contingency anticipated. Your air should be getting quite thin by now. Will you surrender the bridge? Negative. Academic, Captain. Refuse and every person on the bridge will suffocate. One of my favourite characters was always Uhura, who I've been lucky enough to meet and interview twice. And, I mean, she's the reason I still wear hoop earrings. She is the woman I would want to be. (laughs) And if you look in every episode um, where there's a kind of confrontation with her, she never gives in. And it's a a really nasty moment where they're trying to force them to do stuff and they've put Kirk in a vacuum chamber. And if you've ever seen, I think at Licence to Kill, they actually kill someone that way in that James Bond film where basically, you know, you explode. And they start turning the the pressure down and turning it to a vacuum to try and force them to act. And you realise that they're not going to do it. They're going to let him die because they know that's what he would want of them. And she, you know, she gets punched in the face for refusing to do something and they're threatening to do it again um, and so again although I'm you know I'm very wary of sadism especially against women I think it was used very powerfully and economically and her defiance is remarkable and you have a real sense of just what was at stake and how much this crew love each other and how much again a bit like the crew of um, Moonbase Alpha they genuinely believe in kind of very clear moral values and I think that was incredibly inspiring If you join me Spock, I will save his life. My vessel was useless. I need you and yours to select a colony planet, one with a population willing to be led by us. To be conquered by you. A starship would make that most simple, wouldn't it? Each of you in turn will go in there. 
die while the others watch. Oh, he's great. He's so sinister. And I know that sometimes the kind of the love plots they used to work into all these episodes were a bit tiresome. But I think here, this idea of him having a hold over... I think she's a historian, isn't she? She's got a fascination with him. I think it's definitely... It works. And in a way that, you know, the Harley Quinn Joker thing I find quite creepy. I've ever only seen that film. But there is something about the, the idea that, you, you know, you can win over someone who wants to be on the winning side and her fascination with kind of great violent leaders of the past, which definitely resonates in the present. In fact, the new Moira Buffini play, Manor, has a, a nationalist leader and his partner is a historian who's given up her job and is just adores him. It's really interesting. And oh, as I say, I just the look of that show and his, how sinister it is. And, you know, they, they, it all turns out in the end, but only just. So it's one of the really dark Star Trek episodes. It packs so much into what, the 50 minutes. You know, and as I say, you know, I mean, I know Ricardo Maldonado wasn't of Asian heritage, but again, you know, he's playing a Sikh and it's made a big thing of, and I, I think it was great. I believe our heading takes us near the Sete Alpha star system. Quite correct, Captain. Planet number five there is habitable, although a bit savage, somewhat inhospitable. But no more than Australia's Botany Bay colony was at the beginning. Those men went on to tame a continent, Mr. Khan. Can you tame a world? And you're a fan of the film as well. Yeah, so the film is really, really moving. I was watching it again, I think possibly before the pandemic or quite early in it. And at the very end, he and, you know, his ex-girlfriend, the mother of his son and McCoy are all standing looking out the window at that new planet, the Genesis planet that's been created. And he says, I feel young. That line brings a tear to my eye. There's something about, you know, these, these old war heroes who've seen too much, but they're called on again. And the idea that there's a kind of rejuvenation just in, in doing the right thing. I find that incredibly moving. We're now halfway through your perfect night in, so we'll just take a quick break while we get some refreshments. Um, have you got a favourite advert we can play at this point, Samira? I really liked the British Caledonian adverts with singing British businessmen being very excited at being served by beautiful women in kilts. I've flown with US Airlines and the girls are really nice and those beautiful Far Eastern girls do splendid things with rice. German girls are so correct and the planes are never late. But there's only one girl we want to see as we reach the departure gate. I wish they all could be Caledonian. I wish they all could be Caledonian. British Caledonian, airline of the year. So it's a bit like Tegan in, you know, the Peter Davison Doctor Who. <laughs> yes. I had an aunt who was an air stewardess. She was so beautiful and glamorous, and my aunt Ruby on Air India, that she was actually using their print ads in, you know, Time magazine and wow. stuff. And when she used to come and stay, she used to get the, the 265 bus from Heathrow Airport um, to our house, because it used to run all the way in those days and come and stay. And so I have this lovely association with all these wonderful women for whom it was a really good career choice. And... The one that actually the men are sort of charming. I don't think they're trying to be creepy, even though it's full of racial stereotypes. Um, but also, it's just the idea that these women are superior to them all. And I guess there's a kind of innocence about that advert, which maybe belies the darker truth of what it must have been like to be controlling these men in um, first in business. And I miss British Caledonian. I once saw a documentary in the cinema all about how they trained British Caledonian stewardesses. It was in, it was like when they used to have like a small movie with the main feature and the main feature was the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu with um, Peter Sellers. So I have happy associations. Okay, Samira, it's now part two of your perfect night in. It's 9.30 and your next choice is... You've chosen Tenko. Why have you chosen Tenko? Yeah, so this was just, you know, I think it's one of the greatest shows ever made. Mm. And I stumbled across it one night. I don't know what was on before. Because it probably started about nine. I must have been watching a sitcom or something. And I, I watched it from very early on in series one. And it was just, hang on, this world full of women. And, yeah. you know, very quickly you got the concept that it was set in a, you know, um, after the fall of Singapore. 
But it was all about these individual women who had such different backgrounds. And there was the kind of the racist older Dutch woman. And there were these there were these women of Asian heritage, some of whom had quite British accents. And I just recognised the complexity. I mean, I actually had uh, relatives um, in Singapore during the fall of Singapore. And I, I you know, I lost relatives um, during the time my mother told me. So, you know, Singapore has a particular presence in the Indian diaspora as well. And you could tell, obviously, that it had been shot in Britain, but it didn't matter because the intensity of the acting and the complexity of their relationships. You know, there were the young women who might be sleeping with the guards, trying to get a bit of extra. There were the fallouts, there were the rivalries. But but there were all these actresses that I'd never really seen before because I hadn't really watched much of Doctor Who. So I didn't really know Louise Jameson from that. I knew her from this. And there was actually one of the actresses in it I had spotted had been in Space 1999. Uh, so, you know, there were just so many great roles and parts. And you really cared about them and as it got towards the end of the war and this is an episode from you know very close to the end the stakes suddenly got a lot higher when I think Stephanie Beecham who was just she was the the rebel the kind of sexy rebel and I love the idea that these women could still you know you could still see the glimpses of the women they'd been before the war and that the war hadn't and the camp hadn't broken their spirits and she sneaked out to the men's camp I think she ha- she had a, an old flame there or something and she gets caught and they torture her in this episode. And I just, I mean, it was so shocking, but it was done really carefully. And I, I felt that they knew when and how to use those moments of extreme violence. There was a kind of honesty to this show. And I, I just, it, I, was, I was completely compelled to watch every episode. It had a huge impact on me. Bastards. Whoever did this. Is she in terrible pain? Well, I failed to mention that Apart from the bullet, a blow to the cranium has rendered her unconscious. Now, what I require and quickly are these. Tweezers, sake, white or unbleached cloth, fine undyed thread, knives, narrow-bladed, sharp, and needles. I could clean and sharpen them on my stone. Thank you. Ernest got some sort of sugar tongs. Would they be of any use? Anything could be of any use. Yeah, the episode you've chosen is season two, episode eight, and I believe that's just after she gets shot in the back. I don't think she can walk again. Is that does she? Yeah. Does she never walk again? Um, I think she dies, and she re- she refuses to kind of f- okay. fight back. I mean, basically, she gets shot because I think they've you know they've been spotted as she was trying to sneak into the camp or something. But then they want to find out you know where she's been and all that she's done, and to implicate anyone who might have helped her. And and so you know they kind of obviously you don't you don't see it, but you hear her screams where they've obviously she's wounded, and they go in and they torture her um, her wound, and. You know, all the other women protest, you know, the sense of the helplessness of the camp um, and the, the kind of doctor's kind of nurse saying, you know, you have to, I don't know, they try and heal her, but she obviously has lost the will to live. And it just felt, I mean, I, you know, I couldn't quite bring myself to rewatch the whole of this episode. <laughs> um, I, I was watching it. At, this is 1984, isn't it? 82. 82. So I was 14 when this, when this ran. And mm-hmm. I, was, I was quite a sheltered young woman. And this was probably the most emotionally powerful thing I had ever seen and it, you know I think it just aroused a, a sort of it connected me to powerful, the powerful emotions that exist within women and you know I hadn't thought about it a lot over the years but I remember when I spoke to Graham Kibble White he was asking me about favourite shows and I did a miniature version of, you know, of A Perfect Night and I realised Tenko would be kind of pretty much number one on that list for a show that changed television changed the way I saw what women could do on screen and opened up all these ideas that I still carry in my kind of career as a journalist, which is the things that good people can do, even in a time of incredible bleakness, that you can still make a choice um, sometimes, even if that choice is limited. I'll tell you, if I had my way, I would hang the little half-caste Judas. You do no such thing. Give me one good reason. Once in London, before the war, I witnessed a lynching. No real evidence. Just impotent fury. Only they chose. Not a half-caste, but a Jew. Yeah, I mean, I said her colour, because that's just part of what she is, no. that's all. You use colour as a term of abuse. Half-caste Judas, that's what you called her. Well, if colour pushed her into it, who's guilty then? Or don't you care? Don't you patronise me. I absolutely do. What I didn't like was, I think there's another series when they when it's after the liberation, and it's sort of their lives afterwards. And I just remember one of them... I don't know if she's she's having she's kind of got a boyfriend, but they had the morning thing. She wakes up and you know her the sheep falls down and she's not got a top on. And I just thought the gratuitous toplessness just made me really cross. 
alongside the good acting, I remember those moments where you could tell 80s attitudes to women. It's like, oh, yes, you know, mm. you're in bed. So it would be quite natural that, you know, we get to see your boobs. Now, if you've never seen Tenko, everyone, it's available on BritBox, as is The Prisoner and Space 1999. Other streaming facilities are available. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that in. Okay, um, moving on till 10.30, complete change of pace now. We've got something called Dread Poet Society. Can you tell us about that, Samira? Yeah, okay, having just said Tenko is the best drama I've ever seen, the single best piece of television I've ever enjoyed in my life is this. So Dread Poet Society was an in- one-off drama, but it was part of like a little series of films, independent little run of stories um, that were commissioned for BBC Two. And I think it went out in 1994. Two. Two, yeah. So it's got a quite a Channel 4 feel to it, you know. And I thought it was Channel 4. I was shocked that you just said it's yeah, BBC Two, yeah. yeah. So, um, and basically it was inspired by um, the fact that Benjamin Zephaniah had been considered for a special poetry a professorship at Trinity College, Cambridge. And the Sun newspaper, our old friend, ran this article with a picture of him saying, would you want your daughter to go out with this man or something like that? And and obviously the kind of deliberately stirring up this racist furore at an idea that a, a black Rastafarian who had you know he'd spent time in in Borstal because he'd had you know kind of difficult upbringing but you know would you want such a person to get a, such a prestigious role and of course it scuppered a hit and he never got it but the Daily Mail's version of the same story said you know the the spirits of romantic poets you know, Keats, Shelley, Byron must be turning in their grave. So someone thought, well, let's turn that into like a drama. So it's him and he's from Birmingham getting the train, uh, the last train to Cambridge. And it gets on with Timothy Spall, who's this kind of really conservative, that sort of classic Mondeo man. He's kind of a parody of that idea of this kind of, you know, businessman Tory voter. Yeah. Ian, you're him, aren't you? Eh? What? Yeah, you're in the mail at all. God, you know, I knew you were famous as soon as I saw you. God. Benjamin Zephaniah, you're that bloke that duck on children's TV, ain't you? I think you should check out where that paper's staying, man. All oh, right, yeah, yeah. I'm not usually a sun reader per se, like. Trinity College, Cambridge, Don. Professor Benjamin Obidaya Zephaniah, you dread Don. Anari, that's me. Well, maybe. I'll find out when I get to Cambridge. That's a proper job, is it? There's a terrible electrical storm and the spirits of Byron Shelley, Keats and Mary Shelley suddenly find themselves on the train and they have a kind of showdown. It's so brilliantly shot and they did hire a train all night. I actually met someone who worked on it. And the most amazing thing is I have interviewed over my career every single member of the cast except Alan Cumming. Emma Fielding, who played Mary Shelley, told me it was her first professional role I think after drama school but it's just charming it's just utterly charming about the way that they encounter him and Alex Jennings thinks he's a minion of Satan and then they start to kind of produce poetry to, to rival and, and Keats is Dexter Fletcher who's this kind of miserable miserable working class kid who's got a bad cold and Shelley's just playing with the wiring so it kind of it just parodies them all beautifully it's just brilliant writing it's beautifully shot and they didn't, you know, I just think it's an example of original television making. I just wish there was more like it. I am Lord Byron, an English lord and the finest poet of the age, at your service. This is Percy Shelley, a scribbler of verse. His wife, Mary, a woman, and John Pissabed Keats, a dwarf and an irksome source of misery to us all. Mr. Meachin, I'm Garfield the Comical Cat, and if over there, that's Annika Rice. Garfield and Annika? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm here to star on my own TV show, and Annika's doing a My Little Pony lookalike competition, actually, Mr. Boyle. Lord Baron. I know it seems a long time ago to some people, but 1987, which is when The Sun and The Mail wrote their pieces, it was well into the second half of the 20th century, and the way that it was OK to, to write stories about people of colour then, openly racist... You know, we need to be reminded of this stuff. A lot of those journalists are still working. They're still, you know, holding senior positions. Men of England, wherefore plough for the Lord to lay ye low? Wherefore weave with toil and care the rich robes your tyrants wear? Did you write that? Yes. Wicked lyric guy. (laughs) Wherefore feed and clove and save from the cradle to the grave? Bowls and grateful drones who would... Drain your sweat, nay, drink your blood. Have you leisure, comfort, calm, shelter, food, love's gentle barn? Or what is it that you buy so dear with your pain and with your fear? Feed ye so, another reaps, the wealth ye find, another keeps. 
The clothes ye weave, another wears. The arms ye forge, another bears. How come you can know my pen? I saw Michael Smith do it on BBC Two. Before we move on to your 11 o'clock choice, um, can I get you something to drink, Samira? What would you like? Oh, I mean, if it was in the 70s or the 80s when you could still get proper Ribena, I might be tempted to have a hot Ribena with some cloves in it. Oh, I haven't had one of them for years. Yeah, I tried making it for my kids at Christmas a couple of years ago, but they don't put sugar in Ribena anymore. They put really hideous artificial sweetener. So it tastes disgusting. But a proper hot Ribena, original recipe with cloves. The goodness of blackcurrants. That's Ribena goodness. With vitamin C to help build bones and teeth. Ribena, the great natural health drink. For you, your children, and your children's children. Okay, Samira, it's 11 o'clock. What have you got for us next? Okay, so you've chosen the South Bank show and you've chosen a specific episode. Can you tell us about which episode you've chosen? Yeah, this is the episode about Kenneth Williams. Kenneth Williams has been dead for six years, but his elfin witchcraft is still alive. So carry on, Ken, again, here in Melissa Rame's South Bank show film, which unblinkingly assembles, or as he might have drawled, entwines his public and his very private parts. I don't know quite why, but I... I just always loved and been slightly obsessed with Kenneth Williams. And I, I had his autobiography, which she did on tape. And I remember buying it in the from the BBC shop when I first joined the BBC in 1990. I used to just play it on my cassette player at night uh, regularly. And so I just got this sense, even though he's, you know, his own official version of his life is not the truth or the whole truth, you got this insight into this amazing world that he entered in the world of theatre and he does talk a lot about Joe Wharton and his friendship with him and he's just one of those people, Leonard Rossiter's another, a comic actor who I just, I miss him, I just miss what he brought to culture even though he didn't fulfil his potential and this kind of explored the strange contradictions of his life, you know a lot of his friends were still around then and the fact that he was a real narcissist, um, he had this very, very distorted attitude to his sexuality and kind of couldn't quite cope with it. He had this very odd relationship with his mother. And then his friendship with Barbara Windsor, and he went on he went on Barb with Barbara Windsor and her husband on their honeymoon. You know, I just the weirdness of his life and his friendships. And just little things like John Sessions does the readings from Joe Wharton's diary. In the 1960s, Kenneth Williams became great friends with Joe Wharton, the playwright, and his lover, Kenneth Halliwell. He both played in and directed Orton's work. Orton, also a diarist, had sexual mores which were completely opposite to those of Williams. I walked him to King's Cross, where he caught a bus home. On the way, we talked about sex. You must do whatever you like, I said. As long as you enjoy it and don't hurt anyone else, that's all that matters. I'm basically guilty about being homosexual, you see. He said. What the, what the South Bank showed as best could do so well was it could capture uh, someone in, you know, like a, like the absence of them with all the people who knew them while they were still around to tell you. You know, you could only have made that documentary then. And, of course, so many of those people are now gone. Um, and I like the way that you could celebrate a life that was a sort of modern life. And, and treated as art. I mean, one of the unexpected moments in that documentary, which is really interesting, is, you know, what happened to Kenneth Williams' career in the 70s, where he's making the last few of these terrible, terrible carry-ons. But they gave him a, a, a show, and it was sort of supposed to be cabaret. And he was introducing these terrible, terrible Euro-trashy acts, kind of plate spinners. and It looked so crass, just reminded you of the really naff side of the 70s. And the fact that they made time to explain, you know, this show is supposed to be his showcase, and every time he might have started to tell a good story or have a bit of an act, he then had to introduce some <laughs> Latvian plate spinners. No, there's a great art, great art to comparing, a great art. Well, that's the way I say that. See, if that comes out wrong, it's great art. <laughs> and then you get the people writing in. They write in, you know, about your diction. They do, and my diction is beautiful, as you know. But they write in and say, what's a great art got to do with comparing? <laughs> 
just as my stuff starts to create an atmosphere, you're back in the banality of these terrible acts. So that sense of, of mid and late 20th century culture being captured as well, TV culture, which I still don't think is properly um, appreciated and curated. Um, but I thought this episode did a really good job of doing all that. And I believe your husband taped over the VHS copy you had of this. You've never forgiven him. No, I have to say, it's a very sore point. That and my copy of Crossing Delancey. Yes, no, don't even talk about it. Yes, I've had it hard. I've known hardship. I have, I've had it hard. I have. <laughs> yes, I have, dear. You have too, have you? Mm. I didn't watch every episode, but I remember the theme music and you would, you would stay, because it was really late, but you would stay up for an episode about someone that you really rated. So when they did people that I cared about, I, I would. And I don't know when it ran till, but it was that sense of giving due recognition to figures who might be relatively recent in culture. And it's funny because so many of them crop up on YouTube now. And there's one that I haven't watched through, but I'm going to. Like, there's a Paul McCartney one from quite early in the 80s. And it's just a really interesting point to be assessing Paul McCartney. You know, so part of what I like about the South Bank show is it's capturing people actually just about the point where they're hitting middle age rather than now when, you know, everyone's reverential about all these people, aren't they? But they weren't in the 80s. Okay, Samira, it's midnight and your final programme is a horror film. I stumbled across this film in, I think, the very early 80s when BBC Two used to show a horror double bill late at night, which I know many people remember fondly. And the first film would be something older, black and white and not actually that scary, like The Tower of London, uh, made in the 1930s or 40s. But the second one would often be a hammer. And this one isn't a hammer, is it? Or is it? No, no, no it's, it's not. not. But so it's interesting because it's got Peter Cushing. It is itself actually technically a remake, a bit like there were remakes of Frankenstein and Dracula. There was a film in the 1930s called The Ghoul and it's from I think it's from a story and it's apparently from this idea in India I suppose it's the idea of a zombie but someone who has you know a person who's either been bitten by or has consumed something and they are like the undead and the only way to keep them alive is you have to feed them flesh you have to feed them human flesh so it's like having a zombie that's sort of an invalid <laughs> and, and what was interesting about this is the only nothing about it they've set it in the 1920s and it starts with a kind of false lead where a woman wanders into a house and she walks into a room and there's a man hanging from the ceiling who turns and starts to speak to her this frothing at the mouth and then you realise the whole thing is a dare and she then drives off and it's a bit like Psycho, she drives off into the country, I think with a boyfriend doesn't she, and then they, they kind of they, they, they have an accident and they're, they're sort of rescued by people there and John Hurt very young John Hurt is this kind of odd local man you can't work out what's wrong with him and basically you know she's been taken to this country house to be turned into well mashed up for dinner for this mysterious figure who lives in the house and Peter, it's Peter Cushing's son and obviously his son had been um, infected in India. The young Maharaja introduced me to an esoteric faith of his own only a very select few were invited I, I was flattered but ignorant of what it entailed. I even persuaded Harriet to become a follower. It was her they really wanted. And then, Simon. It was vile and obscene. Oh, dear God, forgive me. So there's a kind of post-colonial air to it. And I, I partly remember the naturalism. In a weird way, it's like a British social realism horror film. I just remember it being shot in a very unglamorous way. It looked like a very realistic English country landscape. Everything's a bit kind of grey and cold and um, and just the atmosphere of it. And weirdly, I used to, I wouldn't say dine out on it, but when we used to go to family parties where all the kids would be upstairs, my sister would say, Samira, Samira, tell them the story of the ghoul. And I was really good. I could describe the whole plot like a like an old, you know, like an old medieval bard. And they'd sit around the fire and I would I would tell them this ancient tale of the ghoul. And it was just me recounting in great detail the the, um, the sort of storyboard <laughs> of that film, which I can't remember quite so well now, but it just had a big effect on me. And I, I just love the atmosphere. I just thought I just always associate John Hurt with that film. I 
And this escaped little moments, like there's especially the Indian Ayer, who's the, there's often this mysterious woman who's the, you know, like in Jane Eyre, there's the woman who goes up into the attic and they don't know who she's looking after or what she's doing, but she's she's looking after the mad wife up there. So there's a w- woman like that, and it's obviously a white woman in slight brown face, but wearing a sari and mashing stuff up in a pestle and mortar, which is obviously she's mashing up human flesh. So I just love the way all the, it just seemed to take its time to put together all the details. And only at the very, very, very end do you see the ghoul emerge and he's shot, doesn't he? And he goes, Mama, and you realise he's a child. It was it was kind of like a version of Psycho in reverse. So that's how Samira Ahmed's Perfect Night In shapes up. At 6pm, the goodies take on Adolf Hitler with hilarious consequences. And this is followed at 6.30 by an episode of Space 1999, which features Christopher Lee running a very reasonable taxi service back to Earth. At 7.30pm, Patrick McGowan ends up seeing Double in an even more baffling than usual instalment of The Prisoner, while at 8.30, the classic episode of Star Trek that introduces Khan, the villain you all love to hate. Stephanie Beecham is out for the count at 9.30pm in Tenko, while at 10.30, Benjamin Zephaniah finds himself stuck on a train with the romantic poets and a conservative voter from Birmingham. That's followed at 11 by our South Bank show profile of the life and career of Kenneth Williams. Just don't tape over it, whatever you do. And the evening concludes with the midnight movie The Ghoul, which features Peter Cushing and a very young John Hurt being a complete and utter shit. And that's Samira Ahmed's perfect night in. It's a bit grim. I've got one final question for you. Who would you choose, living or dead, to spend your perfect night in with? I'd have to choose both my children, who are great fun to watch anything old with. And my son had a reputation at school. We'd go to parents and they'd go, oh, you're the parent who watches The Prisoner with your children. <laughs> so my kids have really been very good at watching stuff with and introducing them to it. I think I'd sit and watch this stuff with them and see what they thought. Otherwise, you know, I don't know, I'd, I'd be tempted to say something I'd love to watch TV with Kenneth Williams, but I, I suspect it wouldn't actually be that fun. <laughs> Samira, thank you very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed that.